As you make your way back to your seats, you can you can go ahead and open your Bible to First John. First John, if you're if you're new to your Bible or just haven't been in First John for a while, near the end, Revelation's the last book of the Bible. Just flip back to the left a little bit, and uh, you'll come to the letters of John. Last week, Larry began our series in John's epistles by introducing us to the author and his purpose in writing. And Larry highlighted that John writes so that we might know that we have eternal life. Larry pointed us to 1 John 5:13. And there John John writes that I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Larry highlighted that one of John's primary motivations in writing is to give assurance and confidence to these who believe, these who he's writing to. He wants them to have assurance. This is John's audience, though. Not anyone who might just listen in, but very specifically, John writes to those who believe. Compare this to the audience of John's gospel. So John wrote the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John, in 20, verse 20, chapter 20, verse 31, he says that he writes that you may believe. So in John's gospel, he's writing to those who don't believe that they may believe. In John's letters, he's addressing believers that they might know that they believe. He writes so that they might have certainty that they have eternal life. So assurance is a primary theme of this letter. And John focuses here because he focuses here because he writes on an occasion where false teaching was causing Christians to doubt to doubt what they believed, to hesitate in what they believed. And throughout this letter, we're going to see John speak of a group that is opposed to Christ and his message. These are the Antichrists. Anti meaning against, against Christ. Now, we don't know exactly who these people were, but it's clear that they called themselves Christians. But John, in no uncertain terms, he wants to clearly define for his readers who is of God and who is not of God. And this group of antichrists, they are not of God. One of their primary teachings through John's letters, we can see that it had to do with Christ. They denied Jesus as the Christ. Jesus is the one who came in the flesh. They denied the physical and historical reality that there ever was a man who walked this earth who was at the same time fully God. And these false teachers, they didn't just deny truth and fall in with the world. No, they still wanted to be counted among the Christians. And they actively sought to influence the believers as they proclaimed their message. And this was causing confusion and doubt among the true believers. And isn't this one of the evil one's primary tactics? He wants to cause us to doubt God and his word. Don't believe me? Well, I've brought some witnesses. First, we see this in the garden. You flip back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and the serpent asks Eve, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's working to undermine the word of God. We see this in the story of Abraham and Sarah when God tells Abraham in Genesis 18 that Sarah, at 90 years old, is going to have a son. And Sarah laughs. She says, That's, that's ridiculous. She doubts God. We see this as God leads his people out of Israel into the promised land. Again and again, the people complain that God must have brought them out there to die. In Exodus 16, 
So this is after God's, God's brought them out of Egypt through the ten plagues. He's had them cross the Red Sea in dry land by parting the waters. God brings them out to the wilderness. And in Exodus 16, they complain that they've been brought out to be killed by hunger. So what does God do? He sends bread from heaven. Then, just days later, in Exodus 17, I mean, just the next chapter, Exodus 17, they complain that God must have brought them out there to die by thirst. So God brings forth water from a rock. Again and again, all throughout Scripture, we see over and over God's people doubting God. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11. He says this, As the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is a primary tactic of the evil one. In Revelation 12, the devil is called the deceiver of the whole world. And this is what he's at work doing in John's world. And this is what he continues to do in our world. Deceive. Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. That was true then, 2,000 years ago, as John was writing to these Christians. And it's still true today. So John writes so that those in Christ might be sure. They might be sure of God. That they might not doubt. And just a few verses after the purpose statement that Larry highlighted last week, John gives another summation of his epistle. If you look down at chapter 5, verse 19, if you're there, John writes, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in power of the evil one. We know, we're sure, we are from God, and we also know this, that the whole world lies in power of the evil one. In one sense, John writes so that Christians know how to live in this world. There are two pillars that shape how we navigate this world. We must know who we are and we must know what the world is. In John's world of 2,000 years ago, it's not all that different from our world today. This can be something that we forget pretty easily. In our day and age of great prosperity and technological advancement and medical treatments and quality of life and of ever-expanding possibilities for recreation and leisure, We can subtly buy into the idea that we really are going somewhere as a world. We really are advancing and progressing. But here's the thing, and this is something that, especially after our series in Ecclesiastes, that we're pretty well acquainted with, there's nothing new under the sun. For all the changes that seem to take place, there is still nothing new under the sun. John's world of two millennia ago pushed against the exclusive and supernatural claims of the gospel. In his world, there was an active push towards pluralism, that there are many paths to to the good life, to eternal life, to the blessed life. There are many ways to get there. Sounds familiar, right? In John's world, truth was seen as something that's relative. It's not a fixed reality, but it's determined, maybe culturally or maybe individually. That also sounds pretty familiar. In John's world, spirituality was something that was mystical. It's subjective and something that we experience. We don't so much know God as we feel God. As I've already mentioned, when it came to the church, false teaching was this present reality. These teachers sought to show that the gospel, it was old-fashioned and incomplete. It didn't have everything that it needed, so it needed to undergo some, some change. In many ways, our world, 
It's no different from John's world 2,000 years ago. We're still surrounded by these very same ideas. Pluralism pervades society, reinforced by the idea that truth is relative. The Christian message of salvation is seen as maybe insufficient or maybe insensitive. Today, there is a general distrust of universal truth claims. And this has led to much doubting in our day and age. Much doubting inside the church's walls. But John writes to us so that we might be a certain people. We might be a sure people. So the big idea that we're going to be getting at this morning is this. Those in Christ, those in Christ are a certain people because they stand on the apostolic witness of the incarnate God. Those in Christ are a certain people because they stand on the apostolic witness of the incarnate God. That's what John is communicating in the passage we're going to look at together. So if you're there, 1 John chapter 1. This is the word of God. And let's stand for the reading of God's word. When we read God's word, it's as if he's addressing us himself. And if the president walked in or if a king walked in, we would, we would stand in honor and reverence. And so just as a reminder of, of who spoke these words into existence, we're going to stand for this reading. This is the word of God beginning in chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Thanks be to God for His Word. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, thank You for speaking to us in Your Word. Thank You that we get to open this book and and read these words. And may we have hearts that are soft to be conformed to Your image as we reflect on what You have for us today. Lord, help me to be a help to these people, not a hindrance. And may, may we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ together this morning. Amen. You can be seated. Now descriptions of this passage, these four verses, they're often characterized by comments of being a complex jumble of phrases, of, of being just kind of this ambiguous and, and not clear statement. One commentator remarks about John's logic that it's not in the neat, linear, sequential fashion, fashion, but a halting style that is more elusive than declarative and that interrupts itself, backtracks, then leaps ahead again. It's kind of all over the place. And as Larry mentioned last week, John is writing this as an old man. And there is some, some evidence of this in his seemingly circular reasoning, his circular arguments. But in spite of this, John is overwhelmingly clear in what he's doing. Inspired by the Spirit. Now in the Greek, there's a main verb that is the center that all of these phrases support. But it doesn't come into focus until verse 3. So in in English, it's kind of hard to pick up on this. In the Greek, it would be pretty clear. Look with me at what John writes there. He says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. We proclaim. This is the central action of our text. Now, before we go any further, notice how John's letter doesn't begin. Every other letter in the New Testament, 
begins in the same way, except for John's letters and Hebrews. Every single one of them begins with the same way you or I would write a letter, if you've done such a thing in the last, I don't know, 10 years. But we would, we would start with some kind of greeting. Dear so-and-so. But not John. It's as if he can't hold back and wants to waste no time in getting to his point. The great 20th century Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, he comments on, on this beginning saying, Here is a man who has something amazing to say. He knows these people have to hear it, and so without any introduction, he suddenly plunges them into the heart of the mighty message he has to deliver. There is nothing uncertain about this message. It is a proclamation. There is an urge and authority behind it. We proclaim, John writes. We proclaim. Now the we that John speaks of does not describe John and his readers or John and other people that he's writing this letter with. No, the we speaks of a very specific group of people. They are those who walked and talked with Jesus. They are the apostles. They are the witnesses of Christ. And God made them witnesses so that they might be proclaimers. God made them witnesses so that we might witness to others. Fundamental to the apostles' call and to our call as Christians is to be proclaimers of objective truth. Now as a brief aside, Larry and I, as your pastors, like John, we're not going to waste our time or waste your time by preaching from this pulpit mere suggestions or speculation. We have an objective message to declare, and we're going to proclaim it. And we're going to proclaim it this Sunday and next Sunday and the Sunday after that. Sunday after Sunday, we will proclaim this objective truth as we look to God in his word. The church is and always has been under the siege of the deceiver as he sows seeds of doubt and hesitancy. The church can hesitate to declare that which really is. And the church is always at risk of, of softening the truth to try and phrase it in a way that won't sound maybe so condemning or even so supernatural to modern ears. And what the church ends up with when they go down that path is no truth at all, no gospel at all, no salvation at all. So be praying for this church. Be praying for other churches in our area. Be praying for Larry and I and other, other preachers as they preach God's word that we don't compromise the truth, that we are faithful to proclaim. So this is why John jumps right in and he proclaims that those in Christ should be a certain people. Not a hesitating, not a doubting people, but a certain people because we stand on the apostolic witness of the God incarnate. John says, we proclaim. Now as we move forward through these four verses before us, we're going to allow two questions to guide, to guide us as we look to this text. Question number one, what did the, the apostles proclaim? What did the apostles proclaim? And question number two, why did the apostles proclaim it? So number one, what did the apostles proclaim? The answer to that, the apostles proclaim the word of life. We see this the beginning of verse 1, at the end of verse 1, that which was from the beginning concerning the word of life. And then verse 2, he goes on to describe that life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, I want us to notice two things about the word of life. So they proclaim the word of life. Let's notice two things about the word of life. The first thing that we want to notice is that the word of life is eternal. John begins with this abrupt phrase, that which was from the beginning. 
The word of life is from the beginning. Now, what does this mean? Before all other things were, the word was. When we think of things being eternal, it can be easier for us to conceive of things that have no end. This is what I tend to do. We think of something that that lasts forever. Maybe it's the love that you have for your spouse, and it's a love without end. Amen. Right? Randy Travis, I think. Or maybe it's what you tell your kids when they swallow a piece of bubble gum. Like, I mean, that's going to be there forever. <laughs> we think these things will just last forever. But, but those things, they all have, they have a beginning. Uh, a few years back, my wife and I, we got to visit um, Stonehenge in England. And you're driving around the countryside in southern England. And it's just these rolling hills and like sheep, shepherds with sheep. And then all of a sudden you see this pile of rocks. Like, out of nowhere, just in the middle of nowhere, these pile of rocks. These rocks, they're 13 feet high, about 7 feet wide, and they weigh 25 tons. And they're in the middle of nowhere. And they've been around for, they estimate, about 5,000 years that they've been there. And so, I mean, it seems like, well, that's going to outlast us for sure, and that's been around forever. That's not eternal. That had a beginning. Everything has a beginning. But the word of life... The word of life that is proclaimed by John and the apostles, that is something different. It has no beginning. This is the same thing that the prophet Habakkuk declares when he writes in Habakkuk 1.12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Our problem in conceiving of something that has no beginning, this is our challenge, is that we can only describe it in terms of time, as if there was a beginning. So John writes, that which was from the beginning. And this is just like how John begins his gospel. In John 1, 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We see this same declaration in the second verse of our passage. This Word of life is that which was with the Father. Before time even began, the Word was. And when time began, the word was. John goes on in the opening of his gospel and describes what was taking place then when he writes, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This word is God's creating word. This word is God's word that gives life. And this world always has been and always will be. This word always has been and always will be, sorry. The word of life is eternal. This is a mind-blowing reality to comprehend. And we would have no hope of understanding it, of contemplating it, except for another remarkable aspect of the apostolic proclamation. So the word of life is eternal. Second, the word of life is revealed. Verse 2, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it. The invisible. God you cannot see. The eternal. The incomprehensible God. He entered time. And made himself visible. And this reality changes everything. John is saying that on this very world that we walk. With all of its troubles and challenges. With all of its trials and torments. God came into this world. And John says... That he has seen him. He has heard him and touched him. And this changes everything. This, what I've just described, is the incarnation. 
It's what we celebrate every Christmas and we celebrate throughout the year. God became man and dwelt with us. And this truth, this reality is foundational to our faith. John Stott, he comments this, he says, We could not have seen the one who was eternally with the Father unless he had taken the initiative deliberately to manifest himself. Human beings can apprehend only what God is pleased to make known. Human beings can apprehend only what God is pleased to make known. And this is the basis of our hope, because God was pleased to make known this word. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of life is not simply a message. The word of life is a person. It's a man who entered this world as a baby. This is the word that is proclaimed by the apostles. And that word, the apostles, and that word, it has a name. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came in the form of a baby. We, I mean, we sing about it on Christmas, away in a manger, no crib for a babe. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. At some point in that, it says, like, no crying he makes. Like, well, yeah, he did cry. He was a baby. He, he, he was in every part man, yet he was fully God. The God who spoke all things into existence, the word that created and gives life, entered this world as a baby. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. In verse 1, John piles up a series of clauses describing that which was from the beginning. He writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The order here, it's not random. It's not just what popped into John's mind. There's a definite progression to it as it moves from the most abstract to the most concrete. Think for a moment as, as if this series of phrases was unfolding in a courtroom. So the prosecuting attorney, or the prosecuting attorney comes along, calls the apostles to the, to the witness stand. He says, how can you prove that God became man? And they, 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 John responds, we heard him. We heard everything that he said. We heard the words from his mouth. And the prosecuting attorney says, well, I mean, maybe you... Maybe you'd heard him, but maybe it was somebody else. Maybe it's not who you think it was. So then they say, well, we saw him. We, we saw him. He, he was there. We just, didn't just overhear something. We actually saw him. We heard him and we saw him. He said, well, that's all, all well and good, but images can be deceiving. He says, no, we, we looked upon him. And in the Greek, there's this difference between the saw him and, and the looked upon. And the look is to, to behold, to really contemplate, to, to engage and to study. We looked upon him. We were, we were with him. We experienced him. He said, well, I mean, maybe, maybe you're deceived. Maybe you don't realize it. No, we touched him. 
Maybe you have Thomas at that point speak up. No, I touched him. I put my hands on his wounds and in his pierced side. I touched him. Jesus uses the same word for touched in Luke 24 when he appears to his disciples. In verse 38 and 39, Jesus says, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He was heard, seen, touched, and this is the truth that they stand on. John goes on in verse 2 that, that it was made manifest to us. To us. There's a very definite group that God revealed himself to. And we've been talking about them. They're called the apostles. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 13, he says, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The apostolic witness to Christ is no small matter. It's no insignificant thing. So let me ask you though. Would you believe the gospel if there was no historical grounds for Christianity? Would you believe if there was no apostolic witness? I heard a story of a Mormon missionary who had a lengthy back and forth with a Christian. As the Christian continued to press the Mormon on the historical viability of his religion, the Mormon grew increasingly frustrated and said, I am a Mormon because I have faith. And he confronted the Christian saying, the same should be true of you. You're a Christian because you have faith. Now this sounds pretty good, like it sounds pretty pietistic, pretty godly. But the Christian, in this case, he emphatically responded that if there was no historical evidence for Christianity, he would have nothing to do with it. For the Christian, faith is not some leap in the dark. It's not a gamble where you just hope to come out on the positive side. The Christian faith is factual. It is rooted in the historical testimony of men and women who walked and talked with the God-man. We know that he lives today because they saw him, they heard him, they touched him. As those in Christ, our position before God is not determined by how our current condition or our present mood or the intensity of our spiritual experience. Our position before God is based on something that really happened in time. It's based in history. We stand on the rock that is Christ. God became man and dwelt among us. So our hope this morning like we've been singing about this morning, that we've been reminding ourselves, our hope is not in how we feel. Our hope is not in what we have. Our hope is in the God who took on flesh to save us from our sins. Our hope is, is rooted, grounded in the apostolic testimony to the word of life. So this is the what. What did the, the apostles proclaim? They proclaim the word of life that is both eternal and revealed. But why did they proclaim it? Why did the apostles proclaim their message? This is the second, second major question. Why did the apostles proclaim it? Answer, the apostles proclaimed the word of life so that those in Christ might have fellowship and joy. So that we might have fellowship and, and joy. So we're going to look at this in two parts. First, fellowship. He writes in verse 3, so that you too, we proclaim this, so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Most fundamentally, to have fellowship is to to share, to take part in something together. John is saying that he does not proclaim Christ just so that we might be saved. It's so that we might have life. And not life on our own, but life with God and life together. Our fellowship is both, both vertical and it's horizontal. It's vertical in that through Christ, we can be reconciled to God. The word of life gives us right standing before God. This is our only hope before him. One pastor once remarked, Christians are not merely people who are a little bit better than they once were and who have just added certain things to their lives. Rather, they are men and women who have received the divine life. This is the fellowship that we experience with God, the divine life. But for a moment, reflect on this vertical fellowship of what we just talked about. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This is that which was from the beginning. Before time began, as we talked about, God was. He is eternal. And God has always been. The great I am. God existed always as the triune God. One God in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The same in substance and equal in power and glory. And here's the thing about the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Spirit. God is completely satisfied in himself. God is not a lonely God. He didn't create all things so that he could have some company. He was full and complete in himself. But God creates. God creates, not out of divine need, but for his divine glory. In order that he might receive more and more glory, he determined a plan for salvation in which we could enter into fellowship with him, with God. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And it's this vertical fellowship, we have fellowship with God, that gives us the basis for our horizontal fellowship with one another. We have true and lasting fellowship with one another because we put our hope in the apostolic declaration about God. We are not here for camaraderie or moral support or because we had nothing else to do this morning. We are here because our hope is in a God who has reconciled a people to himself and brought them together into a new community for his glory, the church. We are here because of what the apostles witnessed to. As the great creed state, we believe in the apostolic church. We, we believe in the communion of the saints. The basis of our fellowship is the truth of who the apostles say Jesus Christ is. Not some experience that we have collectively or some common cause that we share. John Piper highlights the implication of this, saying, There is no significant fellowship among people who do not share the same view of Jesus Christ. Shared doctrine is the basis of Christian fellowship. We don't have and can't have true fellowship with those who deny Christ or those who change Christ. This is why we as a church, we're a confessional church. We're not a club. We believe certain things, specific things, and we declare those certain and specific things. And these truths are what bind us together. This is the basis for our fellowship. It's knowing the incarnate Christ, in knowing the God became man. This fellowship is the meaning of eternal life. We have been brought together into relationship with God and into relationship with one another. One hymn says it this way, Here is love vast as the heavens, countless as the stars above. 
Are the souls that he has ransomed precious daughters, treasured sons? And we are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Glorious Father, Son, and Spirit now with man are intertwined. We have fellowship with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So this is the first purpose of the apostolic proclamation, fellowship. Second, the apostles proclaim the word of life for our joy. We see this in verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now one thing that's surprising about this verse is the choice of the pronoun in front of joy. He writes so that, that our joy may be complete. So he ends this opening expressing that, that right now for him, his joy isn't complete. John has such a deep desire that his readers fully participate in this fellowship with him, that his joy is incomplete. Think of John as a parent of children. As a parent, I experience greater and deeper joy when I see my children pursuing that which is right, that which can be pleasing to God. Just past week, this past week, as the kids have started school, there was one boy in Knox's class, he's in kindergarten, one boy in his class that Knox really wasn't interested in interacting with. And Christine and I have kept encouraging him, like, go say hi to this boy, play with this boy, talk to this boy. And he was very adamant, no, 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 no. But then this past Thursday, I think it was, Christine told me that as she was talking to this boy's mom, she looked over and Knox was there greeting this boy and talking to him, all on his own. And this brought great joy to my heart. Now, how much more joy do we experience as parents when we see our children reconciled to God, believing in and hoping in the salvation that can only come through Christ? This, this is joy. One commentator remarks about John, Robert Yarborough, he says, John writes with a personal and pastoral intent, one seeking the highest happiness of his readers, comparable perhaps to the pure hopes for bright, cheerful, and productive lives that parents bear for their children. John writes as a father, and we're going to see this again and again as we go through his letters. He'll say, my little children, my dear children. John knows that true joy is only found in God and in the fellowship of his children. Through fellowship, we experience even more joy because through fellowship, we encounter even more of God. We taste of his grace together. So John writes so that his joy and their joy may be complete. Now, there's another side to this desire for joy from John. It's that this joy is threatened. It's under attack. John's readers are in a world where the message that he proclaims is being undermined. And we live in a similar world today. Now, I want to just highlight two heresies that I think can can lead us to doubt. Lead us to experience incomplete joy. The first heresy is, is prosperity. We believe in order to gain. We believe in order to gain. This heresy runs, runs rampant in the church. It, it replaces, in our context, it replaces gospel hope, the hope of eternal life, with, with the American dream, with hope of a, a good life in the here and now. So we believe just in order to have a better life. We believe so that God will give us good stuff. We believe so that We can just be happy with what we have. This is undermining the gospel, the hope that we have in the gospel. The second heresy that I think we're susceptible to, and increasingly so, is is this idea of acceptance. We can believe and be loved by the world. And we see this rear its head 
most significantly when it comes to ethics and morality in our day and age, especially when it comes to sexual ethics and, and gender, how we understand these things. Now, these are not um, easy things to talk about in our day and age. These are, not, these are not truths that are clear in Scripture that will win an audience with the world. So we think maybe, I mean, we can make the gospel a little bit more palatable. We can make Christianity a little bit more accepting, not so, not so judging. And so we undermine the gospel. We minimize truth. We undermine God's word. But Jesus says in John 14, 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Basically, Jesus is saying, stop playing games. You can't be mine and also be loved by the world. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thought well of by outsiders. Scripture speaks to that. doesn't mean that we shouldn't love our enemies and love our neighbors. doesn't undermine any of those things. But what it does mean is our hope and our identity, our belief, is not defined by what other people think. It's defined by the Word of God. Buying into these ideas of of prosperity and acceptance, they undermine our confidence in Christ. This is the danger. They look to our circumstances, so what we have or who likes us, as the basis for our faith. But we can be confident in the face of hostility because our hope and joy, they're not subject to change based on what's going on in the world. They're not subject to change based on circumstance. They are rooted in historical reality. They're really rooted in what really happened. Those in Christ are certain people because they stand on the apostolic witness of the incarnate God. Martin Lloyd-Jones again, he says this, I do not base my position upon my subjective states and moods and conditions, which come and go and are so variable and changing. I have something solid, a solid rock. No, I thank God that I base my position upon certain facts in history. Do not base your life upon your experience, because you may be sadly disillusioned. Base it upon these facts, and then your experience will be a truer one. Our fellowship and joy are rooted and enable us to stand in the midst of of everything we face, in the midst of every circumstance, the timeless, invisible God entered time and became visible in order to save sinners. In this is life. In this is eternal life, that we know Him. And the fact that nothing can separate us from Him and from His love. On Christ, the solid rock we stand, brothers and sisters. On Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is seeking stand. Let's stand on Him together.